There's two passages I want to read this morning as we're finishing up the second of a two-part series on sin, salvation, and sanctification. The question is, one that Paul raises is, should we sin that grace may abound? And um, the passage I want to read, I want to read one of the passages now, and then the second one, the one that's printed in your bulletin, I want to read later on as we're about halfway through this message. But the first one comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll start with verse 8 and read a couple verses here. Paul here is praying that the Lord would heal him of a physical infirmity that Satan had inflicted him with. And he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take this infirmity away from me. But the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. I just want us to note this, and we're going to come back to it. The Lord says, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect. And it's very clear there that the Lord sees his grace as a kind of power. When we talk about God's grace, one of the things we're talking about is God's power. We'll come back to this in a second, but let's pray. Father, this is your bride, Lord. This is your bride speaking to your bride. For all believers that are here this morning. Lord, I pray for any who's not a believer, Lord, that before they leave here this morning, that they would become a part of the bride of Christ and be clothed with your righteousness. But Lord, for the rest, Lord, this is the bride of Christ, and you see her as beautiful and gorgeous and spotless because of what you've done for her. But Lord, you want her to live as your bride and to live as beautiful as she really is. Lord, you desire each one of us to be freed from the chains that the enemy has put on us through various means. God, I would pray that this morning this message would just be a freeing time. Lord God, use this word as a major hammer and a chisel that would just cut into the chains that keep us from living as the bride, Lord. I want to come against, Lord, sin in all of its forms here, Lord. Whether it's gross immorality, God, or whether it's just apathy or not caring about our spouse, Lord, I pray, God, that you, by the power of your Spirit, would do what my words can never do, and that is break the bondage and set your bride to be free, to be, to be the beautiful bride that you've called her to be. But you've got to do it, Lord. My words can't do it. So God, just do it. Let your power flow, Lord. Grace fall upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to start by making an observation that I cannot prove, but it's been my observation. I've had a lot of experience with this, so I think it's at least an educated guess. But here's the observation. I'll start with an illustration. I had a friend who belonged to the same denomination I used to belong to uh, years ago. It was a very legalistic denomination, very legalistic church. And by that I mean a church that taught people that part of what makes you okay is doing a set of rules, doing the do's and come forward, young man, I see them. They're running the aisles when I preach. Doing the do's and not doing the don'ts, and that's part of what makes you okay. If you want to feel like God loves you, you want to be accepted, well then here's the list. They got a list. The church that I was a part of, the denomination I was a part of, was a very, very much of a list church. It was, they, they prescripted everything you're supposed to do and, and whatnot. A friend of mine became an associate pastor at a church that was part of this denomination, and they were intensely legalistic. They had an incredibly long list. 
They were especially preoccupied with sexual matters, as a lot of these churches are wont to be, wont to do. How are you to phrase that? They would even would preach a lot of sermons on sexual matters, even about what was right and wrong for marriage couples and uh, married couples. One, one thing they preached, not for married couples, but for others, was that you're not supposed to ever touch a person of the opposite sex, don't even shake their hand, because the pastor admitted that he lusts after a woman every time he shakes their hand. People get their hands on their pockets in this church. Um, but a lot, a lot of rules like this. Well, my friend went to this church and was the associate pastor, Now it didn't take very long before he discovered that promiscuity was running rampant in this church, all over the place, up to the top. Sexual immorality all over the place. And yet, this was a church that prided itself on being tough on sexual sin. The irony of that situation, I think, is very common. It's been my experience, and maybe some of you can testify to this, having come from backgrounds like this, but not always, but frequently, those churches that are most prone to try to monitor meticulously people's behavior, that pride themselves on being tough on sin. And what they mean by being tough on sin is having a bunch of written rules on sin. Very frequently, those are churches where there is grotesque sin going on behind the scenes. And all of a sudden you find it and it blows up, the pastor falls into sin, or there's stuff going on in the congregation or whatnot. You hear about this quite frequently. I don't think that is a coincidence. There's several reasons for it. Why are legalistic churches, churches that get life from doing the do's and not doing the don'ts, so often the ones that completely blow sky high when it's revealed that there's all sorts of the very sins that they're preaching against going on behind the scenes? Several reasons. One is this. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 7 that the unregenerate heart, when it, when it, when it confronts the law, the law actually intensifies its sin. Romans chapter 7. You take a heart that's not regenerate, you give it a law, and all of a sudden, that heart wants to do it. It's like, you can't do this. All of a sudden, isn't this, you probably, I feel like this sometimes myself, like, oh man, I really want it now. It's like, oh. Law increases and intensifies sin. If you take an unregenerate heart without the Spirit of God, and you give it a bunch of rules, a bunch of do's and don'ts, you're going to find people just dying to not do the do's and to do the don'ts. And everyone said amen. Second reason is this. Very frequently, these churches operate with an all-or-nothing mentality. What I mean by that is this. It's, it's like all sin is equal. And so sinning a little bit is the same as uh, you just go all the way, and so people tend to go all the way. If having a sip of wine is just as sinful as getting drunk, well, then we might as well just get drunk. If you t tell uh, kids that masturbating is, is the same as, hey, you know, fornicating, they're going to fornicate. And so there's an all-or-nothing mentality. People go on, on sin binges. You know, well, I guess I picked the wrong weekend to quit sinning, and bam, they're gone, and they, they go off the deep end, and you hear about it. They blow up. Third thing is this. Whenever you get a body of people that try to define or that are heavily invested in how things look, you'll get a body of people who can't be very invested in how things actually are because they're too busy keeping things looking the right way. And whenever you get people who are trying to ignore the way things really are, what happens is the way things really are gets worse and worse and worse. If I'm not in a, if I'm not in a body where it's okay to say, you know what, I got an alcohol problem, if I can't come out loud with that because I'm too busy giving the appearance that I got my life together and people who got their lives together don't have alcohol problems, if I'm in an environment like that, then I gotta hide the fact that I got a drinking problem. And if I hide the fact that I got a drinking problem, my drinking problem tends to get worse and worse and worse. 
And the worse it gets, the more I got to invest in making sure that no one finds out about it. And the more I invest in people not finding out about it, the worse it gets. It's a vicious cycle. And so a lot of times in these legalistic churches, bam, it blows sky high. You find out that the pastor has been doing this kind of heinous sin, the very thing he's been preaching against. There's a fourth reason why I think legalistic churches tend to blow up or they tend to have gross immorality going on behind the scenes. And so what I want to zero in on right now is this. When you have lists that people must meticulously follow in order to get okay, you will have a bunch of people who are trying to get okay on their own power. On their own power. They will be people. The, the teaching is this. If you just jump through the hoops, if you do the right behaviors, if you talk the right way, if you just do the, the, the Bible verses, do the shoulds, do the ought to do's, do the gotta do's, do all that stuff, then God will love you, then you'll be okay, then you'll be accepted. God's power, God's salvation then comes to you at the end of all of your effort. But in the meantime, you've got to crank it out. You've got to kind of prove that you're worthy. Of course, the odd thing is, is that if you can do it on your own power, why do you need God's power at the end of it? You need God's power at the beginning of it. But in these kind of systems of thought, it's a matter of doing it on your own. Conquering sin is a matter of getting tough and disciplined and grinding your teeth and just doing it. Here's the thing. Places like this pride themselves on being against sin. We're tough on sin. We got the list. And the church with the biggest list is the church that's the toughest on sin. And if your church doesn't have a list, the, the standards, if you don't have a meticulous sort of thing that you can please people with, then you're just not tough on sin. That's the idea out there. And the church with the longest list is the church that's toughest on sin, and they get the award for being the holiest. But I will submit to you that those churches that believe that they are most tough on sin are, in fact, not tough on sin at all. They think they're taking sin seriously, but I'll submit to you that they are not taking sin seriously, and that's, why, that's the reason why, very frequently, sin is abounding in these churches. Because from a biblical perspective, sin is a far deeper problem than something that we can just will ourselves out of. Amen? The Bible says that without Christ, we can do nothing. John 15. Without me, he says, you can do nothing. Zippo, Nadie, nothing. You can't do it on your own. You can't climb your way to heaven. You can't do the do's and not do the don'ts. The Bible says this is what it is to take sin seriously. The Bible says that in our own power, on our own effort, apart from Christ, we are slaves to sin. We are dead to sin. We are lost in sin. We are by nature children of wrath. We are so far gone, apart from the Spirit of God, that we even think we're doing okay. We don't even notice how far gone we are. We think they were pretty good Joes. Taking sin seriously is not about getting a list. I one time got reamed out by a lady in a congregation who was mad, never preached against speeding. She goes, it's time we take sin seriously. You've got to preach against speeding. And we just need one more thing to harp on. I was with you, that is not, sin is a way bigger problem than my little puny will can ever solve on its own. You want to get out of sin. You need something bigger than yourself. You need the grace of God. That breaks the bondage of sin. But there's another extreme now that we've got to talk about. The other extreme is this. There are churches, we mentioned it last week, a lot of places, especially here in America, that pride themselves on not being legalistic. And they say they are taking grace seriously. If this first group thinks it's taking sin seriously, but in fact has misunderstood what sin's really about, the second group thinks it's taking grace seriously, but in fact has totally misunderstood what grace is all about. And these are places that say things like this, or these are individuals who say things like this. 
Well, I believe in God's grace. I don't, we don't go by those rules and those silly you know, external rules that, that, that these other legalistic churches have. We believe in God's grace, and that means that God loves me no matter what I do. Yeah? That means that sometimes it's taken this form uh, that, the Jesus, that God sees me through Jesus' spectacles. He doesn't see my sin, so I can, as Paul says in Romans 6, he's preaching against this view, I can sin that grace may abound. Why, Jesus loves to forgive me. God is just this kind of this grandpa up in heaven says, oh, you know, I'll take care of it later. I can sin today and God will forgive me tomorrow or I'll just keep on. One of these days I'll get around to asking for forgiveness, but I always know he's just going to wait there and forgive me when I get done. This really fits into a, an American mentality about having this kind of a McChurch, where McChurch is there like McDonald's and it's there to serve my needs and I can go and I want to get the most juicy hamburger without any, at the cheapest possible price. I go there, I get my little meal and I can leave. Or maybe, this is part of McChurch in America, I'll just have my private little religion and it's just sort of like a blank check and I can do whatever I want to do. I'll say he's the Lord of my life, but it never cashes out in changing my behavior. And the cross is sort of like a blank check, and then no matter how much I sin, I can keep on debiting credits on this and say, oh, just cover it up, cover it up, cover it up. All the while, there's no repentance there. I just keep on doing what I want. And maybe I don't even go to a church. Maybe I don't even go to a fellowship. There's a lot of people out there that would call them, Jesus Christ is Lord of my life and whatnot, but they don't ever think about doing anything for the kingdom of God. It's all about me, and the cross is just sort of a nice little thing that makes my life a little bit better. And it goes under the guise of saying, oh, I believe in grace. I believe in grace. The legalists say you've got to go to church. The legalists say this, legalists say this. On the basis of 2 Corinthians 12, I want to make a big distinction here, okay, and follow me, and this is probably going to be a new one for, for some of you. There is a difference. I want to start talking about what is this grace thing? What is this grace thing, which is the center of good news? Center of the good news. There's a difference between God's mercy and God's grace. God's mercy. God is merciful. His mercy endures forever. Praise God that God is merciful. God's mercy is about him not bringing the judgment on us that we deserve. You plead for mercy when you're saying, don't give me what I deserve. That's God's mercy. Wiping the slate clean, not bringing judgment, that is God's mercy. And God is merciful. Thank God for that. God's grace includes God's mercy as its starting point, but it goes way beyond God's mercy God's grace, yes, forgives us our sin, wipes the slate clean, applies the blood of the cross so there's no more any grudges, but God's grace wants to go further and recreate the kind of person we are so that we want to no longer live in the things that his mercy has forgiven us of. He wants to give us a new identity. He wants to restore our relationship with him. He wants to actually free us from the stuff that he has canceled. It's like somebody came along and murdered my wife. Just murdered her. I don't know why, just murdered her. Because she cut him off when they were driving, so he murdered her. I'd be mad. I'd be, I'd be distraught. I would want the death penalty on that guy. Because I believe in the death penalty. I, but my mercy, if I was merciful, I would say, no. Do not bring against this man what he deserves for killing my wife. That's mercy. I want the, if I were to say somehow, if I had the legal power to say, I want the Slate to be wiped clean, that is my mercy. But now if I went beyond that and said, and I care about him as a person, I want to make him a friend of mine, I want to try to restore, get rid of this anger uh, that, that, that he used to kill my wife, I want to become a good friend of him, I want to make his life better, I want to change the kind of person he is, that is my grace. I'm treating him graciously. God's grace 
is big. God's grace is powerful. He says to Paul, Paul, you would like me to heal you, but my grace is sufficient for you. My power will be manifested in your weakness. The grace of God isn't just canceling a debt that we owed. It starts there. That's God's mercy. But the grace of God is the power of God Almighty in our life, working to restore us, working to reconcile us, working to change us, working to give us a new identity, working to get us to move out of the stuff that His mercy has forgiven us on, working to make us really children of God who experience the full depth of His joy and His peace and His power. Because the reality is this. God loves us so much, He forgives us. Yes, God loves us so much, He has mercy on us. Yes, but God loves us so much, He doesn't want us to still be in bondage to the things we used to be in bondage to. He wants to free us. He loves us too much to let us under the cat paw of the enemy. He wants to get us out from there. Not just to pretend like we're out of there, but to really bring us out of there. He loves us so much. He wants to give us a new identity in Christ Jesus. He wants old things to be passed away. He loves us so much. This is his grace now. He wants to make us different kinds of people. So should we sin that grace may abound? Paul says in Romans chapter 6, no way if you think that, you haven't begun to understand what God's grace is all about. Because God's grace is making you into a new kind of person, the kind of person that moves out in the opposite direction from that sin. Praise God. That's God's grace. Thank you, Lord. Now Romans chapter 6. It's in your bulletins there if you don't have your Bibles with you. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine too. We uh, usually keep a bunch of them out back and, and uh, we forgot to bring them today. I think we're all out. But come next week and we'll have a bunch of free Bibles for you. Okay. Because we just want everyone to have a Bible. We think it's kind of a good book. Romans chapter 6 verse 1. This is, you guys, this is... Okay, we've got 10 minutes. This is going to be good. Uh, this is the most freeing thing in the world if we get this, you guys. Uh, um, Paul here is going to tell us why we should not continue to intentionally live in sin if you're a believer. And he also tells us how to get out of that sin. What shall we say then, verse 1? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Hey, since it's for free, it is. Then why not just keep on sinning? What difference does it make? Grace means that God is light on sin. Wrong answer. He says, verse 2, by no means. Never let it be. It's in the emphatic in Greek. You've got to be kidding me. Perish the thought. Now listen to this. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? There's three things Paul's going to get at here. We're going to get them in, in 10 minutes. There's something you've got to know. There's something you've got you to think about. And there's something you've got to yield to. Something you've got to know. Something you've got to think about. Something you've got to yield to. Here's what you've got to know. Verse 3. Don't you know that all of us that were baptized into Christ, the word baptized, baptizo in Greek means to immerse. You were immersed into Christ Jesus. When that happened to you, you were immersed into his death. Don't you know that? We were, we, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Verse 6. For we know that our old, our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died is freed from sin. Lord, help me to say this as, as, as succinct as possible. Here's the thing. Here's what you've got to know. You've got to know the facts. The facts are things that are true whether you know them or not, but it really is going to help you if you know them. All growth in Christianity comes from knowing facts. Here's the facts that Paul is saying. 
you are a believer. If you are a believer, you got to know this. When you believed, here's the fact, you are dead to sin. You are dead to sin. Not if you do this and that and the other thing, you'll maybe get free from sin. No. You are dead to sin. Past tense. Why are you dead to sin? Here's the second fact you got to know. First fact is you are dead to sin. Second fact you got to know is this. Why you're dead to sin? You're dead to sin because when you believe on Jesus Christ, you were buried with him. Your old self was crucified with him. You went down in the tomb with him. Third fact you got to know is this. You came up out of the ground with him. And he tells the Romans to remember their baptism. He says, you guys, if you don't know who you are, think about your baptism. Because your baptism is a reminder of this. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are dead to sin. Because when he died, you died. When he rose, you rose. And the life you now have really is the life of Jesus Christ living in you. That's a fact. It's a done deal. He's not saying, this is a nice poem I want to tell you about. Oh, this is a theological symbol that we can meditate on in our inner essence or something like that. This is a nice little illustration I want to give you. This is a little uh, nice handy flanograph, man. I'm, I'm going to you know, paint out before you. Paul is talking ontological being. He's talking reality here. This is what's real when you believe. We don't have to make sense out of this. We just got to believe that it's true, Okay. Somehow, some way that only God knows, this is the fact of what happens to me. When I believe, it is as though when Christ died, my old self died. My sin died. That's why I'm dead to it. And when Christ rose, I rose. In fact, it's not even as though, because Paul said it really did happen. Somehow, what happened 2,000 years ago happens to me when I become a believer. I say what happened 2,000 years ago applies to me. God says, okay, and it applies to me. And the thing is this. Christianity is not some kind of symbolic theoretical belief system that we hold on to. It's based on the fact, and the fact is, that Christ's identity now is interwoven with your identity. His righteousness becomes yours. Your sin becomes his. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. That's God's grace. It changes the facts. It's a done deal. It's there. It's a real thing. It's as real as the water, the guitar, the drum set that is there. It's as real as me talking to you there. You really are righteous. You really are holy. Because of God's grace, God has mercy on us. He doesn't bring judgment. That's the beginning of it. Praise God for that. But because of God's grace, amen. But because of God's grace, I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. Because of God's grace, my identity is interwoven with Jesus Christ. Because of God's grace, I am in Jesus Christ. What happens to him happens to me. It's like I got a picture of this praying the other night. Um, it's like a spaceship. You know, wherever the spaceship goes, if you're in the spaceship, wherever it goes, you go. So it is with Jesus Christ. When you're in Jesus Christ, whatever happens to him happens to you. And that's not a pretend thing. That's not an as-if thing. That's not an as-though thing. That's a real thing. It really happens. What happens to Jesus Christ? His death is now your death. Life is now your life. His resurrection is now your resurrection. His righteousness is now your righteousness. His holiness is now your holiness. And that's a real thing. That's who you are. That's the fact. And all Christianity comes from knowing that fact. That's who we really are. It's something you got to know. What you got to know are the facts. But there's a second thing now. It starts with verse 11 here. Knowing that fact is something you got to think about. And here's what you think about, verse 11. Man, am I feeling anointed here this morning. I tell you, the sweat is flowing down. I changed my shirt from the last service because it was so drenched. Like, ah, I love it. You in the front row, I just want to share my something. <laughs> Hallelujah. I love this. Listen to this, verse 11. In the same way. Okay, I'll start with verse 10. The death that Christ died, he died to sin once and for all. Okay. 
He died because of sin. He died for sin. He did it once. You don't need to do it again. Somebody out here thinks that their car wreck was because of their sin. No, the punishment is already done. God's not about getting even anymore. The death that Christ died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus Christ is God's life. Now listen to this. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. In the same way. In the same what way? In the same way as Jesus Christ died to sin and now lives to God, you've got to count yourself, consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God. The word there, to count, is the Greek word logizomai, which simply means to think about, to meditate on, okay, to, to, to reckon. Here's the thing. We all know that many times our minds do not line up with reality. Some of us more than others, my wife says, my mind never lines up with reality. But it's possible for me to think that I can sing good when in fact everyone knows I can't think, sing good. It's possible for me to think I smell all right when everyone around me knows that I don't smell all right. It's possible for me to think that I got a healthy family when in fact my family is all dysfunctional. It's possible for me to think that my marriage is doing really good when in fact my marriage is falling apart. It's possible for me to think that my parents are absolute heroes when in fact my parents are, are complete uh, alcoholics and they're, they're just running away and whatnot. It's called living in denial. And to me, it happens when, we, we, when our mind does not line up with reality. If you think you're an elephant when you're really a human being, you've got a problem because the reality is you're a human being. But if you keep on thinking you're an elephant and you walk like that, you're going to miss out on all the joy of being a human being. I have no idea where that illustration came from. <laughs> but it's no different than this. It's possible, in fact, every one of us does it, every one of us believers is... This is the fact. This is what is true. This is what reality is. But we keep on thinking that it's not. And we keep on living that it's not. And you know why we do that? We do that because we have not yet made Jesus Christ Lord of our brains. We still let our dad be Lord of our brains. What dad said to me when I was five somehow has authority, we think, over us when we're 40. But see, what dad said when you were five doesn't mean a thing when you're 40. Why let that thought be Lord of your life? What mom said, what grandmother said, what happened to you, what the rapist did, what the robber did, what the house did when it caught on fire or whatever. Our brains get traumatized or whatever. We buy messages that we see on billboards and on TV and on the radio and magazines. We buy that and we give that the lordship of our brain so it can define who we are. What Paul is saying is this. Stop that. <laughs> the fact is... The fact is that dad was wrong. The fact is that mom was wrong. The fact is that billboards don't know dilly squat about who you are. The one who knows who you are is your creator, is your savior, the one who died for you. And he says that when he died to sin, you died to sin. When he rose from the dead, you rose from the dead. What needs to happen is for us to claim that and make it a part of mine and to think it. Count yourself. Consider yourself. The Bible says, Romans 12, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Be transformed by that. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 says, we bring, this is our warfare, we bring every thought captive to Jesus Christ. Every thought, in fact, it says there, we come against every imagination, every idea, every feeling that doesn't line up with the truth according to what God says. We bring it captive to Jesus Christ. We bring it under his lordship. The thing is, is that the fact that you're righteous won't do you a bit of good till you begin to see yourself as that. You begin to operate on that. And what that means right here for a lot of us here this morning is making a decision 
that we're not going to give mom and dad the authority that they've been having in our life anymore. We're not going to give the world around us, the patterns of this world around us, the authority to tell me who I am. I choose to decide, decide that God is true and nothing else is if it disagrees with that. And I'm transformed by the renewing of my mind. Getting out of sin is a matter of waking up to the reality of who you are in Jesus Christ. That's what freedom is all about. And it's not a matter. Here, here, here's growth. How you feel could not be more irrelevant. I can hate this glass of water, but it's still going to be a glass of water. It doesn't care what I think, because the fact is that it's water. If you're a believer, you're righteous in Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you don't feel particularly good here this morning. Maybe you feel lousy. Woohoo! I almost fell off of this thing. Maybe, maybe you're just feeling really bad. That could have something to do with the devil being on your back. It could have something to do with the fact that your husband left you last night. It could have something to do with the spaghetti I ate last night. Who knows what it has to do with. But it doesn't have to do anything with truth. And you'll never grow out of the bondage of your depressing feelings until you're able to not give your feelings the authority to tell you who you are. Are you following me on this? Feelings are not Lord of your life. You'll grow out of those feelings. The feelings will feel you when you repeatedly, day by day, make a decision to believe that God is true. And if something doesn't agree with that, then so be it. Just be gone with it. It doesn't matter. It is done. And memories, if they don't agree with that, let them be gone. And experiences, if they don't agree with that, let them be gone. The fact is that you're righteous in Christ Jesus. Know the facts. Think about the facts. That is God's grace, you guys. That is God's grace. Shall we sin that grace may abound? By definition, no, because God's grace is the power that leads us out of all that bondage stuff. There's a third thing here, and Paul just, I'll just mention it here in verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, because of the facts, because of what you're thinking about now, therefore, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Why shouldn't you let sin reign in your mortal body? So that Jesus will love you? No. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body, because the truth of the matter is that it's against your Saved nature to let sin reign in your mortal body. This is why I would never even talk about sin, trying to get people out of sin who aren't believers. Because getting out of sin comes after you're a believer. It comes as, it comes as the therefore. Because of who you are in Christ, therefore, start moving in this direction. Start getting free. Start getting liberated. Our part in that is to yield. Paul says, don't yield to unrighteousness. Yield to righteousness. It's not a matter of us. Because we're Christians, we're going to pull ourselves up by our own bootstrap. We're going to try really, really hard. Let's get a list and start policing people. You know, we're just not tough enough on sin. Nothing could be more irrelevant than that. It's a matter, rather, of realizing that the grace of God is in you. The power of God for righteous living is in you. You cannot do it on your own, but what you can do is yield to it. The faucet doesn't create the water. You just got to turn the faucet on, and the water's really desiring to... Burst through there. The pressure's already there. Just turn on the knob. And so it is in my life. The decision you've got to make is this. Will you, to the impulse of God's spirit inside of you that says, you're my precious bride. You are beautiful. Walk like a bride. Think like a bride. Talk like a bride. Live like the beautiful bride that you are. Do not go back into the hog's pen and start rolling around in the mud. You're better than that. You're more beautiful than that. Come on. I've got places to go. I've got things to show you. As long as we keep on choosing the, the hog's pin and rolling around in the mud, you know what? We never really get to the point where we can enjoy the fact that we're his bride. There are things that will be, always be cut off from us because sin blocks that whole thing. I'm going to close with a prayer here, and I want you to say before we do that, 
that the altar is going to be open here. And if you want to come forward, if there's something you need to get freed from or a feeling maybe that you're in bondage to, there'll be a prayer team up here that would like to pray, for, pray with you, pray for you. If you're not a believer here this morning, I implore you to come forward and accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and become part of the Bride of Christ. Let's pray. Father, have your own way, Lord. Have your own way. You are the potter, we are the clay. Mold me and make me after your will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. Father, mold us, make us. I pray, God, that we would just become a trophy, your beautiful bride, Lord, that you are continually beautifying by your grace, Lord. May grace flow in this place, Lord. Real grace, Lord, not pretend grace. The grace that changes, Lord. Let your grace flow, Lord God. Break the fetters of sin. Break the bondage of sin, Lord God. As we go out of here, Lord, I just pray that we carry the aroma, the sweet, powerful aroma of your presence. And Lord God, I pray that that would just melt. All the, all the tentacles of the enemy that are on us, melt them, Lord God, and transform us that we can walk as a joyful bride that you've created us to be. We love you, Lord God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.